God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denominations, politics, organization, or institution. does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. My name is Tino Ratner. Today I am a sober alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Through the grace of God and the wonderful fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and with no little effort on my part, it has not been necessary for me to take a drink since July 10th of 1972, and for that I'm very grateful. You know, there has been a lot of applause during the convention so far, and there's been a lot of work done by a lot of people day in and day out for weeks and for months. And those people who have done all the work are sort of symbolized by the two co-chairmen, Barney and Marnie. So wouldn't Ed Sullivan enjoy that? Let's hear it for Barney and Marnie. They have done a tremendous job and are still doing it. For those, those of us who have been in and for those that are new, there's a little bit of philosophy I would be remiss if I, if I didn't talk about for a moment. And all of us know the road to hell is paved with good intentions, because we all had them when we were drinking. But the road to comfortable sobriety is paved with little victories. And you know, it is a real victory, I think, for a one sober drunk to be able to introduce another sober alcoholic to such a wonderful crowd as there is here tonight. You know, there's over 1,600 sober alcoholics here in this room tonight. And I think that should have an applause, too. Marnie told me earlier that it was all inspiring to be up here and to look out at all these faces, and it really is. So it is indeed an honor to introduce our speaker to you. You know, even though the introducer is a lifelong Republican and the introducee is a lifelong Democrat, <laughs> and in spite of the fact that the introducee spent 16 years as chairman of the Ways and Means Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives, from whence originates all income tax and other tax laws. <laughs> you know, I can't even understand tax laws sober, let alone find the ways and means to pay the taxes. In fact, you know, I think the tax laws are so confusing, it makes one wonder if a bunch of drunks didn't draw them up. <laughs> Be that as it may, our speaker hails from Kensett, Arkansas. 
He graduated from Hendricks College in Arkansas and matriculated in Harvard Law School. And I use this $5 word so the good congressman won't think that we flatlanders don't have no book learning. (laughs) After he received his law degree from Harvard, he returned to White County, Arkansas to practice his profession of law and was also served for four years as the county and probate judge there. Now, our speaker has another very good distinction of having the honor of being a 33rd degree Mason, which is the, the highest honor in Freemasonry. And that makes us good Catholics know to be good to know that Protestants can get drunk sometimes too. Well, our speaker was elected to the United States House of Representatives in 1938 and was continuously re-elected until his retirement in January of 1977. He has served his country continuously and devotedly for 38 years in the U.S. House of Representatives. You know, having been born into and having grown up in a family of lawyer politicians, I have a keen appreciation for, and I have a deep respect for those who dedicate their lives to a public service. And I think it is necessary for all of us to keep in mind that these people have the same wants and desires and needs and troubles and problems that the rest of us have. And they can and do get just as drunk as we do and in as much trouble and as sick as you and I. The main difference, I think, is that for those of us who, while we were drinking, thought we were invisible and got away with it now and then, many times those people, and especially those in Washington, live in a fishbowl, and anything that happens to them is, is made public all over the country. When they foul up, man, everyone hears about it. But the sin of being, the sin, as you know, this alcoholism is not being the drunk. The sin is not recovering from it. We have a man tonight who is a recovering alcoholic. We have a man who, who will tell us when he talks to us and tells us what it was like, what happened to him, and what, was, and what it's like now who who will let us know what it has meant in his life to be a recovering alcoholic. He will let us know what it is to have a new life of sobriety, which we and you who are new have and will have. I give you now with great pleasure, you know, when Kansas called, our speaker was able and willing to meet that call and has come from the East Coast to be with us. I give you now Wilbur Mills from Arkansas. Thank you very much, Dino. I appreciate all that uh, about what uh, maybe I was at one time, but I have a, in spite of the fine introduction. I always have a special way I like to introduce myself, at least in the last four and a half or more years when I get up before an audience. 
my name is Wilbur Mills, and I'm a very, very grateful alcoholic. I, 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 let me hasten to add, if there are any new people here with uh, just a short term of sobriety, don't get sick and throw up here. When I say that I'm a grateful alcoholic, I know I did once when I heard a fellow say that. I had a hard time swallowing, uh, keeping it down, because it made me sick at my stomach to hear anybody say he was a grateful alcoholic. But uh, I had the same impression when the fellow also said that uh, uh, he lived a life of gratitude, or tried to. Well, I couldn't understand why anybody would live a life of gratitude and be an alcoholic, you know. But I want you to know I've changed my mind about that also. I've had such a short period of sobriety that I wonder why I accept an invitation to speak to people who are attending any type of an AA convention. I meet people where I go who have 30 or more years of sobriety, and having had some seniority in my lifetime, I always try to figure out some way to equate my four and a half years and their 35 years. So I just always remind them that they may have been longer without a drink than I've been. But we're the same distance from the next drunk, and that's the first drink. So I, you know, uh, I still have a little degree of ego, I guess, when I want to do that. As Tino said, I'll suppose to tell you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and uh, what it's like now. But let me tell you a little bit about why I'm grateful before I get into that. First place, I'm free now of a desire that I had at one time to drink, and I didn't know I had it. I'm free now to take a drink or not take a drink. It's not a choice with me because there's no choice to me between life and death. I don't think I could ever recover again. It was living hell what I went through with the first several months that I was sober. I'll tell you about that a little later on. Many, many reasons why I'm grateful, but I can tell you one reason. Maybe you haven't heard it. But I was in California not long ago, and I found that there was a neurosurgeon out there who could transplant brains. Brains, B-R-A-I-N-S. Only person in the world I ever heard of it did it. He had about a dozen different brains in his office, all pickled and ready for transplant, you know. And the patient came in one day, and he said he was getting tired of his brain. He didn't, he didn't think good for him anymore, and he couldn't remember like he used to. He wanted a new brain. So I said, well, I've got a congressman's brain. I can let you have for $2,000. I've got a doctor's brain. I can let you have for 2500 I've got a scientist brain that will cost you $10,000. I've got one brain you probably don't want. It's $100,000. $100,000, my goodness alive, whose brain was that? Oh, I took it from an alcoholic's head when he died. Well, why would you charge so much for that brain? Well, it hadn't been used. <laughs> so I'm, great, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful tonight that uh, I'm using my brain again. There was a long period of time when I gave evidence of the fact that 
I wasn't using it. If I was, I wasn't using it very well. Let me tell you something now. In the beginning, I want to make one point very clear. I didn't set out to be an alcoholic. I may be different from the rest of you. I didn't intend to be an alcoholic. I want that clearly understood. I didn't intend to take the first drink I took. I'm going to describe the circumstance and see what you would have done about it. I was out hunting with two or three of my friends. I was 12 or 13 years of age. And I stumbled onto a still. That was in White County, Arkansas, near my hometown of Kensett. I found out later you couldn't go in any direction from my hometown hunting uh, rabbits or squirrels or anything else without stumbling on one. They evidently were in the wholesale business. They couldn't have possibly consumed it all around there. I knew they were doing something with sugar because I've loaded as many as 20, 100-pound sacks of sugar on one wagon for one family. And I told my father after I did it, I must have been 10, 11 years of age, I told him then that Mrs. So-and-so couldn't, be po- couldn't possibly be making that much jam and jelly. He said, it's none of my business what they were doing with that sugar. We merely sold it. But I stumbled onto this still, and I knew the fellow. He knew me. He said, Wilbur, I'm about ready to put this in the quart jars. Why don't you try a drink of it, see how you like it. Now, the man had a rifle on his arm. He invited me to take a drink. Now, what would you have done at 12 years of age? (laughs) He very cautiously suggested to me, very wisely, that I brush back the scum and put this cup down up to about my elbow and fill it and drink it. And I did. I won't take a minute to tell you about that scum. I can tell from looking, none of the women are old enough to remember Prohibition days, probably, and very few you men. But they made their liquor under the trees. There was a reason for that, at least in my country. As the smoke came up, the leaves would make it disseminate, wouldn't go high, you know. The revenue people couldn't locate it. But being under the trees, the leaves would fall in, you know. Branches would fall into it. Anything on the leaves or branches would fall in. Well, I've seen squirrels floating around, rats floating around, birds floating around, all kinds of insects. Occasionally you'd see a coon, possum. Strange thing about it was it should have been a warning to all of us. But the minute whatever was alive hit that stuff, it died right quick. No thing, nothing alive could live after it hit it. And it wasn't because it got suffocated or because it drowned or anything like that. It's just the stuff that nothing could live in it. And here I was ordered to drink it. And I took a drink. I swallowed it right down. That's what he told me to do. I didn't sip it. And then he wanted to know whether I liked it or not, and I couldn't even open my mouth, let alone speak. My throat was burning up. But my toes were tingling. I nodded my head. Now, you wouldn't have done it that way, not with a man with a rifle on his arm. So I told him that. I liked it. They had an expression in our state in those days that nobody could fly on one wing. So do it again. And I did it again. And needless to say, my hunting was over for that day.
I found a shade tree somewhere and went to sleep. I never would go back to that same spot, but as I said earlier, anywhere I would go, I ran on to one of them. And they all had rifles. Every one of them had a rifle. And I knew them all, and every one of them would invite me to take a drink. Now, I want you to know I didn't intend to get drunk the first time I got drunk. Why, my mother and father sent me to a Methodist school where they didn't allow drinking. Didn't allow boys to dance even, let alone smoke. And I went there. Hadn't been there long, probably less than a month, living with two other fellas down in the basement of Martin Hall at Conway in Arkansas. Three great big men, football linemen, all three of them seniors, came in the room and told me to come with them. Naturally, I went with them. Upstairs, on the way, they told me I had been selected out of the freshman class to take on the cognac drinking champion of Hendricks College. There wasn't any contest, I want you to know that. I don't know how many drinks I took. I can remember taking about three drinks. Now, I can attest to the fact that the only similarity between that homemade cognac and the kinds you could buy today in a liquor store is that both are made out of grapes. But they don't sell 150 proof cognac. That's what this must have been. It was powerful, it was hot, and it was strong. I was sick for two days. Now, what do you tell the dean of men of a Methodist college that you were drunk I'd have been expelled my throat was in such shape that I could hardly speak so I told him I'd developed a bad cold flu or something and they let me out of class for two days now, I'll tell you these two things to prove the point that I didn't set out to be an alcoholic but you know I had something about me that uh, I've heard others from podiums like this point out that I didn't realize. If you would have invited me from that moment on, when I had my first drink, to come to your house to drink one can of home brew, or to take one drink, I wouldn't have gone with you. But if you'd have told me you'd have found a case of beer somewhere and you want me to come home with you and split it, I'd have gone. Or if you'd have told me you'd have, you'd gotten a quart. Uh, Jack Daniels or something like that some, from somebody told me to come home where you ought to come. But to have one drink, I wouldn't have. I was never one who wanted one drink. In that respect, I had an alcoholic tendency from the very beginning, perhaps, though I didn't know it. I drank as I wanted to for years and when I wanted to for years. I'd go home and I'd never take a drink because it was in the Bible Belt and I knew that even those that drank down there voted wet, I mean dry, so that uh, nobody looked with favor upon anybody in political office who drank. I wouldn't go after a long period of time to cocktail parties in Washington or to embassy parties. Now my excuse in those days as I look back on it may not have been quite accurate. But at that time, I honestly believed it. As you can tell, my voice is very deep. You go to a cocktail party and everybody talking at once, and I couldn't make myself heard. And I'd always end up hoarse every time I'd go to one, trying to talk. So I decided for that reason I wouldn't go. 
I wouldn't go to the embassy parties after a bit, after I'd been to some of them, because all I knew all they wanted to do was to get you drunk and get you to tell them something that would be of benefit to their country that they didn't know about and that you wouldn't tell them except that you were drunk. Now, that's my excuse. But now as I look back on it, I know I didn't go because very few people, if any of them there, would drink like I would. Well, I've seen women at these cocktail parties in Washington have a waiter come by a dozen times and put ice in their first glass of alcohol. And then when the party was over, put the glass down half full. Four hours of that. My goodness alive, I could have had a case in that period of time. That wasn't my way of drinking. That's just a waste of time. Those are the kind of people I've always referred to as being alcohol abusers. They just have no darn business even putting it in their system. I've later learned that they're what we call social drinkers. And I was everything in the world but a social drinker from the beginning, I guess. But I had no trouble drinking when I wanted to. I didn't realize that I ever had a desire for it. I don't recall ever having a desire for it. In uh, 1973, or 1969 actually, let me back up a moment, I developed a problem with a disc in my back. A doctor in Little Rock uh, gave me a pill to take to relax the muscles of my back when they'd get in a spasmodic condition. Now, my wife swears that he told me, but I have no recollection of it. To this good day, I don't. Not to take a drink ever when I was taking those pills. I know that because the first time I told this, she said that I had done an injustice to this doctor. I said in my talk that he didn't tell me anything about not drinking on these pills, and he should have. She made it quite clear to me afterwards that he had told me, he had made it quite clear to me, but I just didn't want to hear it, apparently. Anyway, I drank on top of those pills. I was supposed to take about four of them a day, and I'd gotten to where I was taking as many as 16 of them a day, and drinking on top of them at night. Doing exactly what he told me not to do, I was addicted to those pills when I had my operation the last day of August in 73, finally. He asked me how many of those pills I had gotten to taking, and I told him eight. Being a good alcoholic, you know, I wasn't going to tell him the truth. I said I'd take, I was taking as many as eight. So he cut me down from eight to six for a while, and then four, and then two, and finally on one. And after about five or six months, he said I was free of them. Well, I had another doctor who was an awful good friend of mine. <laughs> awful good friend of mine. About the time I got off of those pills... He handed me a bottle of 25 milligram Librium tablets to take. Now, I bragged uh, quite a bit from these podiums that I never drank during the daytime. Now, I want to tell you one thing. You don't have to drink during the daytime if you take enough Librium. You can get just as high on it. It don't smell either. I don't think it does. And I was taking enough of those to kill myself. They told me later when I told them how many I was taking a day, that I was overdosed on Librium. I would go home at night, in the beginning, when my wife was still drinking with me, and two bottles, two quart bottles, was nothing to what I could drink at night. I would fall over, of course, in a dead faint. 
go to bed. Usually I'd get home 7, 7.30 because in the wintertime I'd run to the kitchen without taking my hat and overcoat off to get my first drink. And by that time I had gotten, I never did like to put anything in my booze. I never could understand this idea of running good alcohol by putting fruits, uh, various kind of fruit in your drink. Now, I, I like fruit, but I don't want to mix it with my alcohol. And I got to where I decided that that fizz water was doing something to my brain. <laughs> so I quit drinking the fizz water with it. For a while I drank what we call branch water in Arkansas, just any kind of water, you know. But then I, I always had ice cubes in it. I liked it cold. And one night I was at home and I got to thinking, now what in the world would happen to you, Wilbur, if you swallowed one of those ice cubes? <laughs> so I began to put my bottles in the ice box, keep the stuff cold. So by the time I got home, with my hat and my coat still on, by the time I got to the kitchen, I'd hit the kitchen and pour out a, and I had a special glass, it's a pretty good sized glass. I never believed in ounce or two ounce drinks. Pretty good sized glass, and I would take it right down. By that time, I was drinking vodka, but uh, prior to that, I drank Jack Daniels if I could get it. Old Fitzgerald, I love sour mash bourbon, most any kind of bourbon. Finally, a friend of mine thought the position I was in, I should know how to drink scotch. That it would be a little bit uh, uplifting, maybe, for me to drink scotch. So I finally got to where I could drink that. Never did particularly like it. Now, I didn't drink vodka toward the end because I didn't think it smelled. I just got the idea that since it was the only thing I could buy that was 80 proof, and the amount of it I was drinking, maybe I'd be better off if I drank 80 proof stuff rather than uh, wild turkey, which I had been drinking, 101, or even 86. Uh, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't drink it because I didn't think it smelled. I don't want to... I don't want you to think that now. But the last couple of three years, I did drink nothing but vodka almost. But still, I didn't have any problems. I could get up in the morning singing in the bathtub. I never had any dry heaves. I never was sick at my stomach on that. I got sick one time on some rum. That's the most foolish thing. I, uh, it was very foolish the way I drank it. Didn't have any taste much to it. Didn't do anything to my toes when I took the first drink of it. And I took a bottle of it in about an hour. And I spent the rest of that Sunday in the bathroom throwing up. I never would drink rum after that. Never. But ordinary booze didn't make me sick. I never had hangovers, never had headaches from it. I don't know whether it had anything to do with that liver I was taking or not. But I wasn't shaking. I want you to know that. Now, I was at one time. I got to where it was hard for me to sign my name, and I told the girls, is this thing here drawing in my hand? It drew my finger in. You've seen people with that in their hand. I told her I, I write left-handed, and my left hand had that, and, and that, that's, that's what's the matter. It's this darn muscle pulling that finger. It's making my hand shake. So they got me a machine that signed my letters, and, and the machine did a lot better than I could there for a while. But after I got on that librium, I could sign my name as well as anybody. Uh, every once in a while, they 
cashier of the bank down home would call my wife and tell her that they had a check that had been drawn, looked like it was my signature, did I write a check to so-and-so? Even so bad that the cashier of the bank who'd been there for many years couldn't even tell my signature. But that librium corrected it. It corrected a lot of things for me, I thought. I could do just as well, carry on my work. Maybe I wouldn't know what I was doing the next day. But uh, I got by with it. When I got to the hospital, the doctor said he didn't know which is worse, the alcohol or the librium. But he had to take me off both of them, he thought. Now, let me tell you, I was doing all right till I made up my mind uh, that people would like to know down the road, history would like to know just how a drunk congressman acted and performed. So I got to take in my television crew with me. I've often said that Dick Nixon and I probably had the greatest ego of any two men in political office. He made up his mind early that the people would want to hear his voice a hundred years from now, so he put it on tape. And I made up my mind that the people were entitled to know what congressmen did after dark. So I took my television crews with me. Now, if you ever toured in Washington, and you go sightseeing, don't ask any of the people that conduct these guided tours or the cab drivers or anybody else to take you to the tidal basin. They don't, they don't know anything about the tidal basin. If you'll ask them to take you to Mills Landing, they'll know what you're talking about. Of course, I said when I was approached by the press after that that I had been drinking champagne with a bunch of foreigners and I'd learned not to do that. Well, I was with a bunch of foreigners, all right, but I wasn't drinking champagne. They were. I was drinking my usual vodka. But you don't start at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning and end up at 2 o'clock Monday morning drinking all the time without uh, generally getting into something. And I started that Sunday morning in Arkansas at 8 o'clock. And I got on a plane about 4 o'clock in Little Rock, went back to, to Washington, and got off the plane and went right to drinking some more. I don't remember it, one bit of it. It's all blanked out. It was a blackout. I went home and I was in a campaign and I was reelected. Came back, got the committee together on the, I believe it was the 18th of November, after telling the speaker that I was not going to be chairman of the Ways and Means Committee anymore. I would not even seek it, that I was tired and worn out, let somebody else have the job. He was later quoted as saying it. I don't remember telling him. Because there's a lot that happened in 73 and 74 that I have very little recollection of, frankly. Some of it I do. Some of it I may have purposely blanked out. may come back to me in time. But I went on up to Boston after being reelected. It's what any congressman does. You always help people, you know. This young lady was trying to get her name further along the line, perhaps. 
And it would be great publicity, I guess, for me to be there. Anyway, I was there. I don't remember why I went. Don't remember going. Don't even remember being there. Don't remember coming home from there. But I was there. Now, I can guarantee you that. They showed me pictures when I was in Florida. It looked like a twin brother of mine, except I never had a twin brother. And here I was walking out on the stage. I don't know what they call that theater, but I understand they changed the name of it after I was there. But on Tuesday morning, when I, after I'd gotten back from Boston on, on Sunday night, I was waiting behind the rail in a fog, not knowing what I was doing, waiting for the speaker to recognize me, to move to override a veto of, by President Ford of a bill. And as you know, it takes two-thirds of the membership of the House to override a veto. I didn't have any concern about that. I didn't have any regret. I had no remorse. I wouldn't criticize myself. But my colleagues knew that I had been drunk in Boston that weekend, you see. They knew all that. So about a half a dozen of them came to me behind the rail. They've told me about it since. Suggested that I looked like I was sick. They said I told them that I was not only sick, I was dying. Under the circumstances, Wilbur, don't you think somebody else on the committee should handle this matter? Well, of course, the thought evidently went through my mind. They may be able to handle it, but they can't do it as good as I can. And uh, This was my history down deep. Uh, nobody could do it like I could. At any rate, they asked me if I'd let them call the doctor over. Well, he's over in the middle of the Capitol. He, this is my friend that gave me the Librium. And uh, we were, we are, we're still good friends, very good friends. He didn't know that I had a drinking problem, frankly. He said that. Never thought to tell me not to drink on the liver because he knew I didn't drink. Now, this doctor. But anyway, he came over. He was there in less than five minutes. He felt about pulse, and he said that I had to go to the hospital. Now, he's told me all about this. He's told me what my pulse rate was above and below the line. Way, way too high. He was worried that I would have a stroke or that I'd have a heart attack any, any minute if I didn't get some relief. So I went to the hospital. Now, here again, I want you to know I didn't go to the hospital for alcoholism. I may have needed to. I know now I did. But I went because I had high blood pressure. It reminds me of a fellow that I went to see one time in a hospital who was in an alcoholic ward. And he wanted me to know that he had been misplaced in this hospital. He had no problem that really what he had was an infection in his hands. And he showed me his hands. Looked like they'd been clawed. But uh, I didn't go to the hospital as an alcoholic. I want that clearly understood. I went because I had this problem with my pr blood pressure. I got to the hospital. I don't remember being there in the beginning. Sometime or other, I came to... I was in the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, and it's not free, I'll tell you that. Don't think congressmen get to go there free. It's pretty expensive. Finally, I got to where the doctor thought he could talk to me, and I, he, he just about hit it at the right time. I, I knew he was in the room. I could hear him. 
I could understand him. He asked me if I knew what was wrong with me. I said, well, sure I know what's wrong with me. I'm having blackouts, and I call them blankouts. I know exactly what's wrong with me. I've got a tumor of the brain. <laughs> I guess I thought that because I had a very dear friend on the Republican side of the Ways and Means Committee who died of an inoperative malignant tumor of the brain. And on Tuesdays, he'd asked me what the committee had done on Monday, and here he'd been very active in the committee. He'd asked witnesses if we'd had hearings or if we were in executive session. He'd discussed amendments and offered amendments. Knew everything that was going on. He was a brilliant fellow. But he had no recollection of it. And when I found out later that he died of, the, of a tumor of the brain, I also found out that one of the first things that would happen to you would be loss of memory from such a tumor. Well, I knew on top of that that it was a malignant tumor because I had lost a lot of weight. And a doctor with one eye and a half cents, and I told this doctor that, would know that if you've got a tumor and you lose weight, it's bound to be malignant. That's true, he said. But when did you eat last? Well, I forgot. You lose weight also when you don't eat. But he had a problem on his hands. You see, I knew that members of Congress, important people, didn't become alcoholics. I knew that. Just didn't become alcoholics. People who wanted to do something in life didn't become alcoholics. And here I'd done exactly everything in life that I wanted to do. I never had any ambition more than going to Congress, being on the Ways and Means Committee, and being chairman of the committee in time. These things I had accomplished. I couldn't be an alcoholic. I didn't wear two overcoats in August. I got up every morning and shaved and took a shower, put on a fresh bunch of clothes and went to work. I'd seen these alcoholics in the Bowery in New York. I'd seen them on 9th Street in Washington. And they'd told me that if you laid another coat down, they'd have three on in August. That kind of folks. Well, I wasn't that kind. I've learned later that People who think that's the typical alcoholic are missing the base. They represent about three of all of us, those of us who are still drinking and those of us who are sober. Only about 3%, and that's the opinion that most people, I think, still have of an alcoholic. person who had no ambition in life, no desire, nothing. I couldn't be that. So I wasn't an alcoholic. But you know that crazy, stupid doctor who never wanted to be any higher in the Navy than he was, and he's just a lieutenant commander. He never had any desire to be a captain, or he wouldn't have talked to me like he did. <laughs> that fellow told me that I might think I had a tumor and I might have a tumor, but that he had conducted enough diagnosis of me to know that I was a chronic alcoholic with an acute case. Now, can you imagine him telling the distinguished member of Congress that? Well, my opinion of him went down, you know. I didn't have any opinion of him. I was going to see to it that he never got any further in the Navy, or even maybe not even stay in the Navy. He had insulted me. And you don't do that to a member of Congress in a naval facility. But he did. One of the greatest friends I've got today 
he never comes to Washington. We don't have dinner together. He's off down at Portsmouth in the Naval Hospital down there, taking care of alcoholics down there. But I knew then that he didn't know anything about medicine. And I told him so. And I said, Doctor, you're taking advantage of me because you know I'm in such a weakened condition I can't even sit up, let alone hit you. I said, I'll get to you later on when I get my strength back. I said, I don't mind the word chronic. Everything I ever had in my life was chronic. But when you accuse me of being an alcoholic, you're calling me the lowest thing God ever let live, and I'm not that. And this was my opinion of it. Well, he conducted all these investigations for six weeks, trying to find that tumor. It lay me on one side of the thing and take a picture, and no tumor would show up. So I'd tell them they had me the wrong way, turn me over. And they'd turn me over, but no tumor would show. But you know what? I decided that we'd wasted several hundred thousand dollars of your money buying that equipment. It just wasn't any good. So one day I, I told the orderly that worked there and was in my room to get my clothes. Before he got my clothes, he called the doctor, and the doctor wanted to know where I was going. I told him I was going to Little Rock. Come down there with a bunch of doctors that could find a tumor. And stay around him, he couldn't find it. But I didn't go. There were a bunch of nosy people coming in, too. I want you to know that. They were nosy then. Now, Wilbur, you can't make a real big decision for a year, you know. Don't make one at all. In fact, we're going to do your thinking for you. Hell, I didn't even know whether I had a job or not. And here I had an important job. Going to do my thinking for me. And they told me all about their drinking. They'd have me down in the basement, of course, even in even the hospital. you got to go to the basement to meet them. They'd have me down in the basement, and they'd tell me all about how much they could drink when they were drinking. Why well, could I drunk any one of them under the table? They'd talk to me for two or three hours, 11 o'clock at night, Wilbur, you got anything you want to say? Yes, if anybody's got a drink on him, I'll take it. And I would have. All they'd done is whet my appetite. They hadn't told me a thing in the world about how they stopped drinking. They'd just tell me how much they could drink. But anyway, they were there for a purpose. They were trying to tell me that alcohol would cause me to black out. That, that caused them to black out. One fellow told at the time that he'd been blacked out three weeks. Ended up in San Francisco. Didn't know what town he was in. This fellow later became a governor and a United States senator. They didn't know what to do with me. I'd been there about 60 days. I felt too good to be an alcoholic by that time. I really knew I wasn't an alcoholic then. But I'd seen these people. They didn't look good. They couldn't possibly feel good and be alcoholics. I'd seen them. And here I felt good physically. My mind was way off base, and that's the trouble with us when we're getting well. We don't know just how bad our mind is sometimes. Mine was awful bad. They didn't know what to do with me. So they told me to go out, and they, they, by that time, this fellow had thrown the darn rope around my neck and was taking me to a bunch of meetings. I couldn't imagine people going with six inches of snow on the ground in February out to hear somebody talk about how much he could drink. Didn't sound reasonable to me. But they'd taken me to a meeting every night. 
Somebody developed a theory, you know. You had to go to a meeting every night for six weeks. I didn't know it was a catch to it. When that was over, I had to go another six weeks. When that was over, I had to go another six weeks. But there's a very forceful, dynamic individual who assumed responsibility, really, for straightening me out. And he had a remarkable record of doing 12-step work. I didn't pick him. I never would have asked anybody for help. No, I wouldn't have done it. My ego, my pride wouldn't have allowed me to. But they arranged it anyway, and he took me to these meetings. Somewhere along the line, one night, somebody made a very significant statement. And I didn't think I was hearing anything that was going to help me. Somebody said, Wilbur, there may be a way you can tell for yourself. Prove to yourself, one way or the other, whether you're an alcoholic or not. It worked for me, and I think it still works. If you can take a drink and you don't have to have another one, in all probability, you're not an alcoholic. But on the other hand, if you take a drink and feel an overpowering urge to take another drink, in all probability, you are an alcoholic. Well, I could pass that test. I never had had any desire to take a drink. I'd always taken one. I didn't know you had to let five minutes lapse in order for compulsion to set in. I didn't allow five minutes between drinks. So I was going to show these people they had tried to put the rope around the wrong guy's neck, and I knew they were proselyting. I knew that the fellowship they kept talking about, AA, needed members. I knew that. They wanted to get respectable people and all in it. And I knew all of that. These feelings I had at the time, but I was going to show them all, especially this incompetent doctor, that I wasn't an alcoholic. So I went out and I bought me two quart bottles of 100 proof Smirnoff vodka to take one drink. Well, <laughs> now you can laugh at that, but what if a bunch of people had come to see me? That's what I was thinking about. Of course, I had to be taught by you people that that was nothing but alcoholic insanity, and I recognize it as such now. Because here I was, buying all of that, when I wasn't going to take but one drink. Well, why keep it there to tempt me to take another drink, you see? Well, I was setting up a trap for myself where I couldn't possibly win, and I didn't know it. But I took that first drink, and this is one of the first miracles of my lifetime. And I didn't have many of them, I don't suppose, before I got sober. But for the first time I can ever remember, I had the strongest compulsion to take a drink that I've ever had for anything that night. And about five minutes after I'd taken my first drink, I found myself not wanting to take it, not desiring to take it, but taking another drink. And I drank those two bottles and some more and was back in the hospital in about 24 hours after I started my first drink. I don't know when I came to, but when I came to, this fellow who had appointed himself my sponsor... And the doctor were sitting down at the foot of the bed with the silliest grins on their faces you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> I don't care how much you want to gloat about your victory. And that's what I thought they were doing. Gloating over the fact that I was an alcoholic, you see. Smiling at me and I was actually dying. Wanting a drink and I'd been there. I knew they didn't serve patients drinks. I felt worse than I'd ever felt in my life. You talk about a hangover? I had it. Sick at my stomach? I had it. 
They're all miracles to me. A power greater than I was trying to bring some sense to a weak mind about what he was, trying to make him realize before it was too late what he was. What do you think you are now, Wilbur? Doctor asked me. Smart at a question. I said, well, if it'll do you any good, I'll say I'm an alcoholic. It's not what'll do me any good, it's what'll do you good. What are you now? What do you think you are? I'd had my bottoms, I'm sure, much earlier, but I had my moment of truth, I think, lying on that bed with those two people in the room. I had to admit that I was an alcoholic. The very test that I knew I could pass to prove I was not an alcoholic, I had failed. It had backfired. And as weak as my ability to think and to reason was at that time, x-rays had not shown a tumor. They had concluded before I ever left the hospital that I had no tumor, that my brain organically was in good shape. No further excuse could I think of. No further reason could I manufacture for not being an alcoholic. I said, yes, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I don't know whether I really accepted it then. I know I didn't surrender then. But at least I admitted then that I was an alcoholic. And they still didn't know what to do with me. They tried to figure out somewhere for me to go for some further treatment because my mind was so hazy. So I, I, this fellow who's now one of my very dearest friends would come in a room. I'd call him Joe. His name's Buck. I couldn't think of anybody's name. They wanted me to have some further treatment. They finally located a place in West Palm Beach. Now, I, I was pretty well, pretty bad off, but I wasn't crazy. I've decided that. They're talking about sending me up north where the snow was on the ground in February. And I said, no, if I'm going to go someplace to get sober, it's got to be in the sunshine. So they picked this place in Florida, and I went down there. I stayed ten weeks there. I went there wanting to be sober. I want, I want that clearly understood. I wanted to be sober, but I didn't want to live. There were two reasons why I didn't want to live. First of all, as I went to... Florida, my wife went to Arkansas. She'd been in the hospital during this last period of time that I'd thrown this, I'd gotten drunk to have an operation. And I had done enough things to cause her, I know, to want to leave me. I didn't want her to. I loved her. A heck of a way to show it, but I loved her. But when she went to Arkansas, I knew she could have only one purpose in going to Arkansas, and that's to get a divorce. I didn't want to live without her. That was the first thing. Then I'd think, I'd, my spirits would be, uh, jump way up. I'd say, well, I know every lawyer in Arkansas, not a one of them down there would sue me for divorce. Well, then I'd think a minute, yeah, but they graduate a new crop every year. Some one of those new lawyers would love nothing better than getting his name in the paper suing Wilbur Mills for divorce. So I'd be back down in the dumps. This doctor apparently could see through me in that respect, one in Florida, because he trapped me one day. 
I wasn't going to call her. I wasn't going to ask her. I had no right to ask her. I wasn't going to ask anybody, in fact, to help me. That was still my ego and my pride. But I went in one morning to have this hour of one-on-one therapy with him. Just as I walked in the door, he said, Boy, Polly's on the phone. Won't you talk to her? Don't you want to talk to her? Another miracle. I never intended once to ever ask her to come to Florida. I had made up my mind. If she called me, I wouldn't ask her. I pick up the phone. Polly, I'm lonesome. Won't you come to Florida and stay with me? (laughs) Just like that. I laughingly accuse her of having her ticket already in hand, framed with a doctor. But she got there, and I found out that her feeling for me was the same as it had always been. The only thing she would ever say during all the period of notoriety that I went through when they were trying to interview her, Wilbur's sick. I hope he finds out before it's too late and does something about it. Wilbur's sick. That's all she'd say. She had been sober about 20 months before I got sober. She would leave home because she couldn't stay sober around me, drinking like I was at night. And she'd go to one of the two daughters. Well, being a typical good alcoholic, I couldn't understand why any woman wouldn't love to be with me, you know. The only reason why she's leaving is because she didn't love me. I made up my mind that she didn't love me. I always had to have somebody to drink with, so when she wasn't there, after I'd had my first bottle, I'd hit the street. I wouldn't go to a respectable place because people would know me. I'd go to these dives, and about five minutes after I'd walk in, some district policeman would follow me, staying as long as I was there. And I knew the president had the CIA and the FBI checking on me. I knew that, but I thought it was a dastardly thing for the president to get the local district police to check on me. What I, what they were actually doing, show you how crazy I was, what they were actually doing, they were there to protect me because people would get hurt in those places I was going to. And they'd come in there to protect me. Generally, take me home. But what crazy ideas I had when I was drinking, as I look back on it. But the other reason that I didn't want to live, and I had it when I left there, I couldn't live and be an alcoholic. I couldn't live and be an alcoholic. I went back to Congress and resumed my duties. All of the members were genuinely gracious, helpful, went out of their way to try to make things easier for me and to give me support, come by patting me on the back and lie to my face, Wilbur, you look better today than you did yesterday. Keep it up. We're proud of you. Keep it up. Keep it up. Stay sober. I couldn't look them in the face. I was an alcoholic and they weren't. I still had this idea that I was the lowest thing that God had ever let breathe. I was too low to be among them. I was wanting to drink every minute of every hour of every day during that period of time. You talk about an obsession to take a drink, I had it. It was powerful and it was awful. Every time they'd refer to me in the newspapers with one line about what I'd done, they'd put five paragraphs in about what I had done. I made up my mind they were all trying to get me drunk. And I'd show those SOBs they couldn't get me drunk. 
I'm convinced I stayed sober for the first ten months of my sobriety. At least I stayed dry, just out of pure spite. I wasn't going to let them make me take a drink. This fellow that had appointed himself my sponsor could see through me too, I guess. Here I was going around these meetings. Oh, how you feel? Oh, great, great, you know. Isn't it wonderful to be dry? Isn't it wonderful to be sober? Putting on that facade of being so happy. Burning up and dying inside just because I was an alcoholic. I couldn't live and be an alcoholic. He saw through that exterior of mine and that smile that he told me later looked like Jimmy Carter's, except Jimmy Carter's was sincere and mine wasn't. And anyway, he said, Jimmy Carter's teeth are cleaner than yours anyway, too. But at any rate, he saw through me and he said, I'll tell you what, Wilbur, why don't you practice every day just going over and over in your mind this one thing, one thought. That alcoholism is a disease. It's not a stigma. Alcoholism is a disease. It's not a stigma. And I did it. Now, if he'd have told me that I walked up Connecticut Avenue naked, I'd have done it because I did everything he told me to do. And in the process, it was enabling me to stay off of booze. So I did exactly what he said, and I went over it and went over it and went over it. I woke up one morning and actually I couldn't remember that I'd wanted to take a drink on the day before and I couldn't remember when I'd wanted that drink the last day. But it wasn't yesterday. You know, there's a definite miracle and a connection in my experience between my acceptance of the fact that alcoholism is a disease, not a moral issue, not a stigma, and my freedom from wanting a drink. I Nobody can ever convince me that the two things are not related. When I could forgive myself for being an alcoholic is when I lost my desire to take a drink. From then on, I've been on cloud nine, and I mean it figuratively. I'm not going to tell you that cloud doesn't bounce up and down. It does. But that cloud never gets as low as I used to be every day when I was drinking. That's the difference. Never one day can I remember since I lost that desire to take a drink that I haven't been happy. And it's hard to do some days to be happy. What is my primary goal in life? To go a day at a time without taking a drink. That's my primary goal in life now, to go a day at a time without taking a drink. And when I do that, shouldn't I be happy? Let me ask you that. Everything else falls off as trivial in comparison to this most important thing that I must do if I'm to be anything. Every day that I can go without taking a drink is a happy day for me. I went to as many as 22 meetings a week for a long time. And you can do that in the greater Washington area. You can make five or six on Saturday, five or six on Sunday, and one every night and one at noon if you want to. After I retired from Congress, I went to a lot of noon meetings even for 
about seven months before I went to work again. During that period of time, it was easy to make 22 meetings. Some people said, aren't you going to too many? I said, well, if I go to a meeting, they don't serve anything but coffee. They don't serve bourbon. I'm not going to take a drink at a meeting. I'm trying to build up a little insurance for the time when I may not be able, because of health or something else, to get to a meeting. Now, I'm convinced in my own mind that you can't overdo going to meetings. If it's possible, I would have done it. It didn't drive me to drinking to go to meetings. I've talked to a lot of people over the United States who had slips. Whatever the reason is that they give for having it, if you ask them the simple question, when did you go to your last meeting before you took your drink? Most times they can't remember when they went to the last meeting. Now I go to my meetings now because I've learned that the one thing that will get me to drinking again over and above anything else is my life being unmanageable again, like it was unmanageable. I go to meetings to keep my brain and my head screwed on right, to keep my life as reasonably manageable. As you know, there was a time when I was in Florida, the fellow was going through the steps with me, my therapist, and he said, well, are you willing to admit that your life was unmanageable? I said, well, of course not. I managed my life quite well. That's when he was showing me these films. <laughs> well, he was a kind of a fellow that would insult you, too. He says, from the looks of these films, it looks like a jackass could have managed your life better than you did. <laughs> but it took a little hard knock like that every once in a while to get into my brain. What's it like? When I drank, it was hell. A miracle happened, and now it's heaven. It's just that simple. Why in the world I couldn't realize what was wrong with me is beyond me. I thought I knew a little bit about everything and a lot about some things. I knew nothing about alcohol. You've taught me that it's a disease, that it's not something that I should be ashamed of, and I'm not ashamed of it. I don't care who knows that I'm an alcoholic. I try very carefully to protect the fact that you haven't thrown me out of AA yet. I've been thrown out of everything else, but you haven't thrown me out of that. I don't give that away. But I don't care who knows that I'm an alcoholic. I can't say that I'm proud that I'm an alcoholic yet. Maybe sometime I will. But let me tell you this. I am proud of one thing, that if I have to have a killer disease, and alcohol is one of them, cancer, heart condition, alcoholism, I'm very thankful and very grateful that my killer disease is alcoholism. Now, what if I'd have had that tumor? Not a thing in the world I could have done about it. If I'd have had it, I wouldn't be here tonight. I couldn't make the decision as to whether I lived or died. What if I'd have had that heart trouble that the doctor was talking about me having? I couldn't have done anything about it. Might not even have been here tonight. 
But let me tell you something. With the disease I've got, I have the high privilege of being able to make a decision as to whether I live or die. It's just that simple. I have a disease about which I can do something to help myself. You know how I do it? Through recognition of a power greater than I, my God who gave me my sobriety, and recognition of the value to me of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You've taught me that there is more to sobriety than not taking a drink. You've taught me a way of life that I've used to fill the vacancy created in the absence of alcohol. Yes, I'm a very grateful individual. Even though I did not become an alcoholic until I was sober, I'm still a very grateful alcoholic. You know, there was a time when I first heard about AA after I got sober that I knew that Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith had set it up purposely for my benefit. I knew that my God had told them to do it because he knew I was going to need it. Now, this was my thinking. Why shouldn't it have been? Because in those days, I told God what to do. Why, he'd go on a vacation and turn things over to me. <laughs> you never had any wars, you never had any pestilences, droughts, hurricanes, nothing else when I was running things. I often wondered why he didn't stay on vacation and just let me have it. This was sometimes what I thought, frankly. Nobody knew it, maybe. But down deep in me, he was just more or less a slave of mine. And you've taught me something else. You taught me that I was sick spiritually, and I was. Far more so than I knew and far more so than I was mentally. I wasn't really sick physically. Mentally and spiritually, I was. It's taken me a long time to come back mentally, I think. I'm probably back as well as I'll ever be. I'm growing spiritually every day, I hope. That's a desire that I have. But I have a relationship with God that I never had before. And I never failed in my life to have faith in a God. But my God tonight is different from that which my father and mother told me and my preachers used to describe for me. I'm never lonesome anymore. I talk when I'm driving my car to my God. I can imagine they talks to me because I get a feeling of answer and response. But I never am around people in AA at a meeting that my God is not talking to me through people in AA. I can feel him. I can sense him wherever I go at an AA meeting. And why wouldn't he? Sometimes I think we are the chosen people of God. To me, he has done more for us than most any other people. 
If you feel as I do, that you were powerless over alcohol and could do nothing about it, what other human being possessed the power to do something about it for you? My faith leads me to believe, as I said earlier, that God is responsible for me being here tonight. I don't know what his reason was, why me, not someone else. And I don't care until I find out direct from him what his reason was. But you know, when I'm asked to go somewhere, I don't know but what maybe my God is motivating that person to ask me. So I say yes. And I do what I'm asked to do. My wife says in time I'm going to get well mentally and quit advertising the fact that I'm a recovering alcoholic. She thinks it's my mind still doing that. That isn't it at all. I think in a small way that I may be doing when somebody asks me to come to a meeting what my God wants me to do. It's a relationship that is priceless, one I've never enjoyed. If it were nothing else, all the pain and the suffering, the humility that I heaped upon myself and my family, my friends, was worth it. Just to have this relationship alone. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. To know that my sole purpose now in life, other than to stay sober, is to have the strength to carry out God's will for me. Thank you so much. We want to thank you for coming to Kansas and touching our lives and leaving with us a bit of your sorrows, your joys, your sufferings, and your victories. And tell your wife, Polly, that some 1,600 sober Kansas alcoholics send their prayers and their wishes to her for a very speedy recovery. And come back and see us. Let's have another round of applause for Wilbur. Dear friends, we have the big band sound of Newt Graber at 9.30. Before that, let's stand and close in the usual fashion. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.